I can't fix anything if I don't know it's wrong. So, and even if you kind of tell patients or, or you ask patients before you prescribe the medication, what are the three biggest things that you're worried about with starting this medication? So that can kind of help guide the treatment plan too. If I know that you don't have, you know, a lot of anxiety. Ooh, I gotta go. I've been working, told them please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bro. Just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog, so I paid on my fees. I was starving for this day, now my fan, they can't eat. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Cup of Nurses podcast with your hosts, Peter and Matt. We are two nurses on a mission to change this world, one conversation at a time. So let's jump right into it. If you find value in this show and want to join us on this mission, please share and review the show. It would mean absolutely everything to us. Cupofnurses.com for all the info, latest updates of what we're up to, and any of our merch releases. For our conscious movement and our lifestyle podcast, you can check out wearefrontlinewarriors.com. In this episode, we would like to introduce you to Morgan Murray. Morgan Murray is a board-certified psychiatric nurse practitioner from Baltimore, Maryland. Morgan has been a travel nurse since 2014 and has traveled all across the United States. She currently owns a private mental health practice and works as a private contractor. She also is the co-author of So You Want to Be a Nurse, a how-to guide for success in nursing, travel nursing, and opening up your own practice from A to Z. We talk about the roles of a psych NP and how mental health issues are treated. Thank you, Morgan, for being here. Thank you so much for your time. Can you give us a little bit of background about yourself and your nursing career and how you became a psych nurse practitioner? Yeah, so hey, everybody. My name's Morgan. I'm a psychiatric nurse practitioner. So um, first, I grew up in, um, in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and in Baltimore, we have some of like the biggest, I think, um, psych facilities or um, the best some of the best, in my opinion, um, treatment options like mm -hmm. Johns Hopkins, like Shepherd Pratt. So um, like in my nursing career, I kind of like heard about it, grow, you know, kind of growing up as a nurse. Um, and then um, once I started to work and I graduated, um, I actually didn't even know what a psych nurse practitioner was until mm -hmm. I worked with one. And um, she told me all the things that she was able to do. And she was basically a travel NP. Mm -hmm. And she was basically living my dream. And I was like, you know what? I want to do that. So um, I, I did some research. I found a school, a really good school. And kind of like the rest was history. Mm -hmm. So did you get into travel MP as well? So yeah, I did. I did a couple travel um, MP assignments. Now, one thing I will say is that um, currently I'm I'm not on contract, and I kind of like having like the stability of like being able to stay home and work um, because definitely from the travel psych MP side, a lot of the the clinics want you to be able to come in in person, mm -hmm. and I'm not really ready to do that yet. So. Mm -hmm. And when you were a nurse, did you really travel nurse or did you work somewhere as a staff? Yeah, I, I did both. I did both. So I graduated in 2013. 
Um, I'm old. I'm an old nurse, OG. <laughs> and um, I graduated in 2013, and then I, I got my year of experience, and then I started traveling. Um, so I've done both. Um, I've had PRN jobs while I was still doing travel contracts. I've done rapid responses. Mm. I've done strikes. So I've done a lot of different things in travel nursing, too. How is that transition from an RN to now a, a psych nurse MP? How has your day-to-day changed? Or can you touch a little bit up, up about, about school, how different school is versus nursing school? Yeah, I think that school for MPs is so much more self-directed mm. than the nursing school. And I think that as far as the clinical situations, um, when you are in MP school, when you get to clinical, it is not like you are learning anything. You're just basically practicing, demonstrating mm. that you already know the knowledge and the preceptor is just there just to make sure you don't kill anybody. <laughs> um, that's pretty much it. So there's, there is a huge difference between, you know, your process as a student, as a nurse, as opposed to your process as a student MP. Mm. And how has your day-to-day stuff changed? Because being a nurse and a nurse practitioner, you're more of less of the hands-on care, you could say, and more of dictating where care should go, asking questions, doing more of like a physician's role in a sense, right? Yeah, so my job now is definitely more um, patient-oriented mm-hmm. and time-oriented than task-oriented. So mm-hmm. I like that, you know, when you're a nurse, nursing is a 24-hour job. So whatever you don't get done on your shift is going to be done by the next shift. But the problem is, is that I I am responsible for everything with my patients. Mm. I have to do everything. So there isn't, you know, passing the buck off to another provider. There isn't anyone else who really can do my job except for me. Um, so that's the thing that I feel like is the most different. So again, my, my day-to-day is different because I'm now working doing telehealth and outpatient and as a nurse, I, um, I did inpatient, um, I did some outpatient and case management stuff, but now I don't have to, you know, drive into work. Um, so I do have um, shorter days, but I work more days now than I worked as a nurse. Mm. So I don't like to work really long hours because like it's technically kind of mentally draining. So I find myself kind of splitting up my days into like five and seven hour max days. That's awesome. You get to cultivate your own schedule based on how you want to do things. And are you working yeah. in private practice now? Yeah. Yeah. So I do work in private practice now. I have my own private practice um, and I contract out um, with other contractors, other places um, who need psych services. Are you able to do that just as an NP or do you, need, do you have to have like a doctor or somebody above you to own your own private practice? Well, that's a good question. So this is something interesting, like especially this is Maryland specific, um, but anyone can own a private practice. And there's a lot of people in Maryland who actually own outpatient mental health clinics that are not clinicians themselves, not nurses, doctors, anything. The only thing that you need is is that you need credentialed and qualified staff in order to be in a particular, you know, in a particular um, setting and running the thing. So like with um, with outpatient mental health clinics, anyone could open one, but you need to have a medical director. And what state you're in, um, basically, 
decides who can be that medical director. So in Maryland, Maryland is full practice. So I can be a medical director in Maryland and I have, um, but you have other states like California, like New York that are not autonomous practice. Um, they did for the state of emergency for COVID, but they went back. So it really depends on what state you're in, um, what you can do, and then what people you need in, in play. So you have your, your own patients, for example, if one of your patients ends up going to the ED for some psychological issues or SI or, or anything like that, are you then required to also show up in, in the ED and figure out what's what's going on? How does that process go? No, oh. no. Um, we are definitely not required. Hmm. So it's so if you're a nurse practitioner or a physician or PA, um, you would have to have privileges to be able to treat a patient um, at any facility mm -hmm. or any hospital. So sometimes, like, I think I've gotten maybe two calls, like, throughout my career um, where my patients were admitted. And for the most part, um, the providers in the ED will try to get all the information that they need from the patients. Mm -hmm. They typically won't call me or any other provider unless they're really something they're trying to understand like a course of action or if there's like information missing. They, there's a, a lot of information they can access. Like they can access med lists, mm -hmm. all types of things in the ED. So I've only gotten two of those calls before. So as a private practice, do you have your own set of patients you check up on, you follow up in like a regular practice, or is it something subcontracted where you're working for this company, you see these patients, you're done with it, you close the books and you don't think about it again? No. So it's, these are, these are patients that are, are my patients that have been sourced through the um, contractor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So unfortunately, no, I can't, I can't close the books <laughs> and not forget about them. And, um, and sorry, and, and forget about them. Like, um, even when I go on vacation, even though I might not be seeing patients, there's things that I'm constantly doing. So sometimes mm -hmm. I leave my paperwork until vacation. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting perspective because for example, as a travel nurse, you, when I say close the books, you just turn off the light switch. You're not thinking about healthcare patients, and you're coming back to work mm -hmm. and more than likely it might be a different assignment and you're just starting fresh. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not like that. <laughs> it's not like that. But a lot of, a lot of my patients I've seen for a long time. So it's, it's nice to have some continuity, but um, I think that with the pandemic, we've seen a huge increase in mental health needs. So we also have a ton of um, new patients and initial visits on um, people who are trying to establish care. Mm -hmm. So and then when a new patient comes in, what is what are your your role and responsibilities? Do you ask them certain questions, figure out what kind of medication uh, they would need, or is it more of like a psycho psychoanalytical approach where you're almost like a a psychiatrist trying to figure out where their problems are? How do, how does that all how does that all work? Yeah, so um, most psych MPs work doing med management. Mm -hmm. You can do therapy if you'd like, um, but it's typically not a really cost-effective model mm -hmm. for a lot of um, businesses or sustainable. So when patients come to me, I do a full psychiatric initial evaluation, which goes through a lot of things, like um, if they've ever been suicidal, homicidal, um, what medications they've been on in the past. We go through, we look at the dosages of those medications. Um, um, if it was effective, if they if it gave them side effects. Um, and then, you know, after we go through the evaluation, um, we talk about what the plan is going to be. I educate 
every single patient, even if they decide to not take medication, um, because we talk about what um, what diagnosis I came to. How did I come to that diagnosis? Um, what are certain side effects they could possibly ex expect from this medication? And what's the course of action? So mm -hmm. a lot of times I see um, a lot of patients just not knowing what what's the goal for treatment? Like what what is supposed to be better now that wasn't before? And is this medication like, am I just going to be on this for like the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. Or how long do we think that, you know, you're going to be on it? So it's a lot of different moving parts. Um, as far as how you treat new patients. Mm -hmm. What population are you taking care of mostly? Oh, I only do adults. I don't do children. I don't do kids. Okay. It's interesting because I've talked to the uh, pediatrics nurse that said after the pandemic, she's seen a lot of suicide ideation patients and everything changed, which made her leave left pediatrics. So like in your case, pre versus post everything that happened, what are some relevant mental health issues that keep populating and how has that changed post uh, pandemic? Mm. So I've seen, um, I've seen a lot of, um, of patients self-diagnosing from TikTok. Um, mm. I've seen a lot of that. I've also seen, and what? this is, and this is like the trend that I'm seeing, even in like the nursing field, I'm seeing a lot of substance use. Mm. Um, there have been so many different, not only just DEA busts, but also a lot of, um, nurses have been found to have, you know, basically have drug problems mm -hmm. and it's just, it's sad. It's disheartening, but there are some real struggles that people are going through and just masking them with medications or whatever they think that will work. Mm -hmm. So those are the big issues that I see. What do you mean by self-diagnosing from TikTok? What? So I'll, I'll see a lot of patients that, um, that have seen like or follow certain creators on TikTok, and some of these creators are well, no all of them are not licensed as mental health professionals mm. um but there's a lot of people who educate people the general public on mental health that are not licensed or certified to do so mm. um some of the information is misleading and wrong some of it is right but mm. Um, I've seen a lot of it. And I think it's great because it, it, it is helping reduce the stigma of mental illness to talk about it more. But I just think that we have to tread very carefully when discussing things that can make people think that they have something that they don't. Mm -hmm. So, And real quick, and then do you see like nurses giving this misinformation, you, you kind of say, or just other people given this kind of false information to other people oh they're not nurses okay. they're they're um yeah they're just like the general public okay and it's funny because there was a research study that showed that now this new generation they're using tiktok and instagram more for search versus google so kind of it's funny yeah. that yeah. now hey there's this tiktok issue that people are self-diagnosing and it's yeah. and it's yeah. funny you also talked about nurses and this drug is issue because we had previous guests and we mentioned how nurses carry a lot of trauma with them and how that carries over to to work. Yeah, I definitely agree. Yeah. Based on the current health model that you see, in your opinion, to have a perf a better healthcare system in the psychiatric sphere, what do you think should change in that uh, business model? 
medication needs to be affordable. I think that's the biggest issue that I see. Um, it's, it's just interesting because Mark Cuban had apparently developed this, this business that they're going to be able to develop medications for lower costs and what they're able to charge for some of like the medications that we regularly prescribe is absolutely groundbreaking. So I think that medication needs to be affordable. Um, we already have inflation and all these issues with our economy, a possible recession that no one is, you know, saying that we actually have. So being able to afford the medication that you actually need, I think chef's kiss. Yeah, I watched a video with him. I think he was on, on the Nug Boys, and they were talking about this whole pharmaceutical industry. And what he said is why the drugs are so expensive and why they are expensive for such a long time is because some of these companies, when they find a use case for it, you know, they put a patent on it, right? So let's just say a medication works very well for bipolar. So they patent it for bi bipolar. And then before that patent run, runs out, they do trials and show that it's also helpful for schizophrenia. So now that's a new patent. So it basically, they flip-flop from issue to issue, and that's how these patents stay relevant for such a, such a long time. And some of these medications don't get put out onto like the public market until 30, 40, 50 years down the line after it's been used so much on like these 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 different uh, issues. So my thing, my question to you is, since you work with, uh, you could say Big Pharma more than us nurses, is how effective are psychiatric medications? Because I read a lot of articles saying that SSRIs and things like that are only effective in like 50% of, of, the, of patients. Is that kind of true or, mm -hmm. or no? Well, I haven't seen that study. I would love to see it. Um, but what I what I base my practice on, and I, I know I'm a broken record, but I say this all the time. I My practice is based off of science and evidence. Um, that's the only way that I can, I can function. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, the SSRIs and SNRIs are our first lines of treatment when looking at psychiatric illnesses. But you have to understand that psych is so different from other um, forms of medicine and that we're one of the newest um, forms of, you know, of, of specialty. So we're not an exact science. And a lot of what we do in psychiatry is an art. There really is an art of prescribing. Um, that's why I really love what I do, because you can kind of tell when a provider has been in psych for a long time because it's like they know the medications at the back of like for the back of their hand mm -hmm. so you know ssris um might not work initially for 50 percent of the population but did that percent of the population max out the effective dose when they mm -hmm. were prescribed it um what did they start at if it was lexapro how heavy was the patient did they start at 10 milligrams or did they start at five so there's so many things that, you know, when people tell me that a medication didn't work, it kind of like starts the wheels turning in my mm -hmm. head because I know that there are so many things that can happen when prescribing a medication. And it's not necessarily mm -hmm. that the medication did anything. So how about the, the side effects? I also heard that a lot of these medications have have fairly common adverse side effects. Uh, I can't recall the top of my head on what those are. And, and mm -hmm. the, a few other studies that I looked, looked into also show that a lot of people are why they're not being effective, these SSRIs and other psych meds, is because of the side effects, which then lead to patients coming off them um, uh, by themselves and not taking them anymore. So then do you also combine your, your 
uh, pharmaceutical therapies with also like psychoanalysis? Do you also point them to like a psychologist so they can also talk about the problems, not just medication? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So the problem is I can't make um, grown patients do anything. Yeah. Okay. Um, a lot of times these people don't want want to do therapy along with medication management, but absolutely. Mm. Um, the gold standard of treatment for most of our illnesses in psych are going to be medication and therapy together. Um, so I absolutely do that. Mm. The The main side effects with SSRIs, and I love, I love, again, this part of like education and, you know, talking about farm. So you got to look at serotonin. So serotonin is typically housed in our gut. So when you're like flooding the body with more serotonin, it makes sense that it makes you nauseous or mm-hmm. makes you almost want to vomit. So for a lot of patients, some of these side effects are tolerable, mm-hmm. but they're also annoying. And then you start to get into side effects like sexual side effects and, you know, having it more difficult to reach an orgasm or, you know, not having the urge to, you know, engage in sexual mm-hmm. intercourse with your partner. And that can be, a really big issue. Mm. But I think the key is that you need to maintain an open relationship with your patients to be able to talk about it because I can't fix anything if I don't know it's wrong. Mm. So, and even if you kind of tell patients or, or you ask patients before you prescribe the medication, what are the three biggest things that you're worried about with starting this medication? Mm. So that can kind of help guide the treatment plan too. If I know that you don't have, you know, a lot of anxiety and, you know, you're telling me, look, I can't deal with any sexual changes and I cannot deal with weight gain. Like those are my two biggest things. I'll say, okay, cool. I think maybe we should start with Wellbutrin then, you know, instead of maybe Prozac or something else. So there's so many things that you can do when you're honest and upfront with your provider about the things that you're like, I'm not going to do that. And you mentioned serotonin being being derived from the gut. So then how important is diet and exercise? Because I feel like sometimes you might be able to counter effect those adverse effects by taking a change in your in your diet and maybe mm-hmm. optimizing the gut and you might be able to take a less dose of Alexapro because you're eating healthier, doing all this, and now you're maybe producing more serotonin or whatever that is. And also, especially with like with like guys, if you're have low libido or you're scared for like the the adverse sexual effects. Maybe you could just go to the gym. Maybe you might be able to build up more testosterone and you might counterbalance those. So do you all focus mm-hmm. on diet and exercise? Well, diet and exercise is important, but as far as like how it kind of guides the prescription, um, well, how does it guide the medication management is a little mm-hmm. bit different. Funny enough, um, some of the biggest factors are going to be smoking. Mm. Um, and if the patient smokes or not, um, that's probably going to be one of the biggest things. And then also for prescribing, um, especially when you're looking at um, the psychotic disorders, the, the biggest thing I'm going to look at is the patient's overall health status. Um, not if they want to work out, but how are they actually working out? Because there are a lot of medications that we could put people on that can make things worse. Mm. So unless I know like... Um, Unless I know that the patient like knows the risk in all of our psych meds, every single medication on the planet has a side effect, possibly. Mm-hmm. But as long as the patient is is able to understand and be aware of what those side effects are, I'm cool with it. Because mm-hmm. like as a practitioner, I've had patients who have had like a seizure disorder. Mm-hmm. And you know that if you prescribe someone like a stimulant 
or um, a medication that lowers their seizure threshold, you know that there's a good chance that that medication could make them have a seizure. But, you know, looking at the history, talking to the patient, they're like, well, it's either, you know, I get fired from my job or I take the medication that I need. So, you know, you really have to leave that up to the patient. And I think that patients are kind of more aware of what than what we you know give them credit for so i just i kind of put the ball in my patient's court a lot of times honestly yeah you have to because you know change starts with from within and if they're not willing to change and put an effort then that's gonna reflect on also that the care that they get yeah i'm only the girl with the license that's what i tell them yeah. that's all i'm here for so yeah straight business <laughs> Yeah. What does a perfect patient look like when they're both into therapy and psychiatric drugs? How long does it usually take for them to transition? Let's just say they have depression, they hit rock bottom, they're on meds, they're getting therapy. What does the perfect transition look like where they get off their meds and continue their life? I don't think there's a perfect patient. <laughs> um, I think that every single patient um, and in psych, we have to realize that when a patient is without symptoms and symptom-free, even if they're taking their medications, that's success to us. That's, you know, you moving on in the, in the continuum and you being okay. So um, I have patients that have been on their psychiatric medications for a very long time. There isn't, there isn't much that can possibly change with certain disorders, but other disorders like depression um, or anxiety, yes, it might, you know, that patient might reach a point where they've, you know, they've gotten all their coping skills. They've, um, they've done the, the work in therapy and they've, they've gotten to a good place. It might be possible that they discontinue their medications. I haven't seen many patients with psychotic disorders or um, bipolar disorder, honestly, get off of um, their medication. Um, without having serious um, consequences, like having uh, another um, worsened readmission. Yeah. So. Got it. So like for the less, less severe psychotic uh, cases, let's just maybe stick with depression and anxiety. Do you ever have patients that are like, hey, Morgan, I've been on this medication for six months. I actually feel very happy. Do you recommend me maybe getting off this medication? Yeah, I've had a patient um, say that they wanted to get off the medication, um, titrated the person down, and they had um, one of the, the worst um, suicidal ideations they had had. Yeah. So not titrating down meds, huh? <laughs> no, 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 no. Again, that you, so I, I look at patients almost like, like you would a relationship. Every single patient is different and you can't judge one patient or how you move through your course um, with other patients based on that one encounter. Unless, you know, it, it was, you know, evidence-based practice that you found and there was something like a sentinel event that happened. I don't judge other patients from what happened with one patient. So, you know, that was, that was just a relapse and, you know, I'm, I'm still going to be there for them. Um, I still, I still fit the patient in for an emergency appointment to get them started on meds. You know, so I'm not, I'm not heartless. <laughs> so, you know, I, I want, I want my patients to do better. I want them to graduate and go away from me. And I, you know, and I love them from a distance. Um, and I, and I love that for them, mm. but, um, whether they're here or not, you know, I'm going to support them. Mm. Do you work with uh, patients that have ADHD or anything like that? Yeah. 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 Is, is it pre prevalent? Because I'm going to be honest with you going through college, 
like everybody that went through college, I feel like 90% of people that I talked to have done 80, have done uh, Adderall or something similar while they're in college. So I'm curious now, does, does that also transition back into their uh, adulthood now? Do you, do you see a lot of patients with, with ADHD or, or, or is it just like a, you could say a temporary drug that get that teenager or not teenagers, but people in their twenties use it to get past college when they need a little bit of a extra energy, I guess you could say. Yeah, I, I have a, I have quite a few patients, um, that have ADHD. Um, but what I think we are kind of going through currently is with the stigmas that have been attached to ADHD and mental health for so long. Um, we're kind of trying to get to a point where we're like, were you not treated because your parents didn't believe in it or were you not treated because you weren't having the symptoms? Mm -hmm. So we really have to kind of, um, you know, use discernment. And I think that the U S is getting into a crisis because we have, you know, pharmacies that are running out of, you know, stimulants. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think it's been a lot of things going on in, um, in the U S so mm -hmm. there, there's definitely been a lot of ADHD though, mm -hmm. for so sure. How do you, how do you, how are you able to tell if someone actually has ADHD? Because some of my, some people, people that I know, they're, they're on Adderall. And I'm going to tell you, I have more ADHD than, than they do. And I'm not on, on anything. And they told me it's so easy to get. All you got to do is talk to your doctor, present these symptoms, tell them, tell them this is how you're feeling. And then they got the, the, the prescription, which I mean, I understand is not a good, good way to, to get it. And I don't blame the physicians for doing this because when somebody comes to you complaining about these symptoms, you're not going to, you know, tell them that they're lying or, or whatever, you know, it's, it's easy to bypass. Right. So, so how do you kind of vet those kind of patients? So, um, you still do a, a psych yeah. initial evaluation. I'm, I feel like my assessment skills are a one, so I can, I can, I can use good mm -hmm. discernment, um, and, and a little bit of common sense to, uh, to see when someone's trying to, you know, jack my chain, <laughs> but as far as as far as patients, like I, I just operate from a space where I just give people the benefit of the doubt mm -hmm. and I listen to them, I hear them. But a lot of times with um, how ADHD has kind of changed is that I have to do a kind of like more thorough assessment as to where things started in their childhood. Mm. Um, but it's just like with any other disorder or disease in psych, you know, you just look at the diagnostic criteria and you know you treat mm -hmm. so how do you take care of yourself when it comes to mental health and everything because you're such um you're so deep into the field i'm sure it drains you emotionally too what's your go-to self-care routine so i'm in therapy and i think every every psychiatric provider should be in therapy if your therapist does not have a therapist run <laughs> um Noted. yes Noted. Yes. Also, my so I have two things that I do for self care. So first, I love spa days. Um, I go to the spa almost every month, and I was in Turkey when y'all first emailed me. So the whole month of June, I was just like trying to get to a hammam. Like I did, I did it three times, and I'm actually going back to Turkey again. Mm. And I made an appointment just at the hammam because I was like, I have to go. Um, so yeah, like that's, that's my, um, that's my first thing. So my other thing I do for self-care is travel. Mm. And, um, that's been, that's been an amazing thing. Um, just because with, with COVID and not being able to kind of go anywhere, I'm kind of getting back outside of my travel shell. So I'm starting to do the far trips again. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited about that. Mm. What's your favorite place you traveled to? Is it Turkey? 
think Bali. I think Bali would probably be my favorite. Mm-hmm. Bali or Thailand, like hard, hard Thai. Mm, why? It is, Matt and I are actually going to uh, to Thailand. We're going to Phuket for three months. Oh, okay. What drew to Thailand so much? So, um, I love the food. The food mm. was so good. Thailand, Thailand, which is a vibe. I like that it was it was pretty cheap. Um, as far as being able to afford things, um, doing things because me and my girlfriends, we you know we booked a yacht day. Um, we did a lot of things, and you know your money goes really far out there, so mm. that we can stay out there longer. Um, but the people are nice. Um, oh, there's a really really nice movie theater too. I can't remember the name of it, but I loved it. It was mm. so nice, and they had like silk. Um, sheets and everything on the bed. They had like personal butlers who brought you everything. It was so nice. What? That's awesome. That's wild. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to switch um, switch it up here. So I know you also co-authored a book. What got you into writing mm-hmm. a book and what are you passionate about when it comes to helping nurses? Oh, okay. So I wrote the um, I wrote the book because I felt like I kept getting the same questions, mm-hmm. like people who wanted nursing advice or, you know, people who said, okay, I want to be a nurse. Where do I start? So I kind of like compiled the most popular questions and I started writing. And I actually had went to my nurse practitioner, who is now my business partner. And I was like, Theo, we, we, we got to do X, Y, Z. And, you know, he's just been around for all of my crazy ideas. So um, we're kind of stuck with each other, but yeah. So that's kind of what like fostered us to write the book, um, especially you know the, the first one. So you want to be a nurse, but our second ebook um, is funny because we wrote that before before we got into the financial situation that we're in now, like mm-hmm. with this crisis, and we talked about like our own portfolios, what we were doing. Um, at that point, I had made the most amount of money off of my brokerage um, account. Um, And it's just, it's been a total, it's been a total change. I mean, granted, we're still doing really, really well. Mm -hmm. Um, We haven't really lost money, but I mean, we just know that there are so many people who are, especially like nurses, healthcare Mm -hmm. workers, who are just like, okay, well, we're in a a bad position. We're not in a great boat. So how do we get to a place Mm -hmm. that we feel comfortable? Mm And you studied under some financial experts. What was your biggest takeaway from from those people? What have you learned about about your finance? Mm, so, um, I learned number one that I need to be investing early mm-hmm. and regularly, and you can't predict what's going to happen in six months and three months. You just have to just keep going in. So, you know, not trying to really time the market has kind of been the best strategy for me. And I've kind of been able to maintain some regularity in my own portfolio mm-hmm. by not really acting on impulse. Cause you know, a lot of people, when, when we get to a financial crisis, they're like, Oh my God, let me pull all my money out. And I'm like, that's the opposite of mm-hmm. what you need to do. So, I think for me, just kind of like setting it, you know, setting my, um, you know, my, my, my 401, uh, my 401k, setting my Roth IRA, like all of my, all of my investments and just making them on a regular schedule mm-hmm. and just not like not looking at it has been probably one of the best things yeah. too. Yeah, definitely. Especially after this, this downturn. So do you just do the 401k stuff or do you also do maybe some other investments on the side? Like do you maybe do real estate or you do you do maybe your personal stocks, anything like that? Mm-hmm. So um, 
as far as like, so I have a, like a, a brokerage account where I just, where I do do like where I day trade. Mm. Um, so I do that. Um, I haven't really been doing it. Um, honestly, um, with, with the market being how it is. Mm. So, I mean, I, I do have that. Um, I have my Roth IRA, um, and I have, um, a step 401k because I own my company. So when mm. I get paid, I'm getting paid as, as a 1099 contractor. So I'm really not making any money until I actually pay myself from payroll. Mm. So I'm able to kind of get, um, a little, uh, quite a lot of an added benefit doing things that way. Yeah. So I yeah, you mentioned day trade. I used to day trade a little bit back, like when uh, cryptocurrency was was back on the rise. I did a lot. What of, yeah, you did like, it on Binance? Yeah, I used to do it on Binance. Yeah, back in the oh, yeah, dope. back in the day. Yeah, I I don't do as much anymore just because um it's a lot easier to day trade when it's an uptrending economy. You know, because yeah. uh, shorting stuff is is a little bit a little bit more difficult, you could say. But I guess if it's a downtrending economy, you're better off shorting and stuff like that. But I don't really day trade anymore. I do more of like if I do stocks, I do stocks mm -hmm. for longevity. If I do okay. uh, crypto, that's something for longevity as well now. Uh, but what I recently got into is is Forex, and that's basically uh, like currencies. Okay. And I don't really day trade. I do more of like weekly trading where, where I mm -hmm. kind of look at the met metrics and stuff. And that's that's been going pretty good so far. But, but yeah, nurses, it's interesting because nurses, they make a good amount of money. And sometimes they don't know what to do with it. And a lot of times, mm. you know, so so it's, it's very beneficial for nurses to get started into like investments like be beyond the 401k route because 401k just Absolutely. yeah because 401k just taking money out of your check and someone else is doing that for you but if you could maybe also invest and get like, like you do like get a different brokerage firm to do it for you and maybe be, be a little bit more active you could stretch mm -hmm. your money really really far for sure yeah mm -hmm. um i just didn't really want to get into real estate right mm -hmm. now um <laughs> which i think is kind of like for obvious reasons you know the interest rates are so high um, and I'm not really interested in buying a property in cash right now, but mm -hmm. I think that, um, because Maryland and Baltimore is becoming so gentrified, like this is probably one of the best times to be able to mm -hmm. do it and have more opportunities. But, I mean, the city has so many different incentives going, like basically begging people to, to buy, um, these houses and put money into them. Mm -hmm. So that's actually interesting because if, if you know if the government's begging you to buy houses and put money into it then that kind of just shows there's not a lot of buyers so maybe a dip in the market some, somewhere soon i have a few real estate buddies that are saying maybe 2023 q1 q2 you might see a little bit of dip dip in the housing market i hope so yeah just because there's good there might be so much so much supply but not that much the demand where they're gonna have to to drop the prices because like you all said the interest rates are going up so if the interest rates mm -hmm. are going up that means you're gonna need to compensate by having you know costs be a little bit less because if you have higher interest, that's going to add on, add on, add on. And you're going to have to kind of balance that with with uh, smaller costs. Because the longer you have this mortgage for, this loan for, you're paying more and more compared to the, the upfront price might be should, might be or should be a little bit a little bit lower. Like it's crazy. There's like a, a place here in San Diego, right in my neighborhood. It costs mm -hmm. $750,000 and it's a two bedroom, one bath, and which is which is which is wild. Like, like I'm not sure who's going to going to buy that. I know housing economy is really high and really high up there, but who would really want to pay for that? You can't really even have a family in that kind of a home. You have two bedrooms and one bath, so you must be like desperate or or something. I agree. Yeah. That <laughs> that's wild. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Morgan, what would you give yourself some advice if you're in your earlier twenties? Three things that you would tell yourself now, looking back. Live for yourself and 
not anyone else, including people that you're in relationships with. If it's meant to be, it will be, but don't pause your life for someone else. Um, I would also say, be confident, be sure in yourself. Um, it's not on you, it's in you. And I would tell myself, I would tell myself that um, you're, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Be easy on yourself. Those are all powerful. They're not only nursing advice tips, but also life advice. Um, yeah, especially yeah. that fourth one resonates with me a lot because I have the high achiever mentality. I'm sure you have that too, P. We probably don't even know it, but this is why we're doing what we're doing. And you're always mm -hmm. trying to build so much and you're never reflecting back like, wow, I've done so much. And sometimes in the micro day to day, you feel like it's not enough. I could have done more. And you beat yourself up for it because you always want to be somewhere else. And it's really just here. Just enjoy that the presence, the moment. You already have it. Just breathe it in and enjoy and don't stress yourself out. Yeah. I, yeah. I strongly yeah. agree with you with your first one because somebody uh, once told me that if you don't learn how to live with yourself, you're never going to be able to live with somebody else. And that really, mm. yeah, and that, that really resonated me because if you're never comfortable with, with your true self, then how yeah. can you be comfortable with, with somebody else? You, you, you can't, right? Because then you're never, you're never yourself. And if you're never yourself, how can that other person always, always be themselves? If you can't take care of yourself, how can you can take care of somebody, somebody else? You know, so that's very strong. Another question that we have for you, the last question that we have, is if mm -hmm. you could have one cup of coffee with anybody dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, so I saw this. Um, I saw this question on there. I was really excited about this question. So I would have coffee with my uncle. So um, I'll, I'll explain the backstory. So everyone usually asks me, well, they usually think that San Diego is my last name and it's not. Um, Morgan San Diego is actually a joke that came from my family and my mm -hmm. uncle. They used to always, um, you know, make the, the reference to the, the, the cartoon character, Carmen San Diego and said, mm -hmm. oh, you're always on the go. My uncle always called me Hollywood and he called me, um, Morgan or Carmen San Diego. So um, right before I was supposed to finish my psych and P program, my uncle passed away um, from a drug overdose. And it really kind of made my path like more clear. And I understand, I understood exactly what I wanted to do um, as far as psych. And although I don't do it now, um, most of my work has been in um, medication assisted treatment and in Suboxone clinics. And that is probably my favorite setting mm -hmm. with my favorite patients. So I feel like being, being in that role and doing that work um, has kind of helped me move past that grief that I mm -hmm. had. But um, I would just love to have coffee with him one mm -hmm. more time. Well, you know, my family is super close, so, hmm. you know, it, we, we took it kind of hard, but, yeah. um, yeah, he's, he's part of my why and my purpose. Hmm. And that's why I told people like, I'm never going to change my name from Morgan yeah. San Diego. <laughs> I don't care who said something about <laughs> it. One last, one last question is because we spoke to somebody prior to speaking with you. Uh, she mentioned that a lot of people use substance abuse and, and drugs to almost, uh, to tap in into their, their past traumas. So do you think, mm. not to get too personal here, but do you think your uncle was going through through some stuff that, that he was using drugs to cope with? Or was it more in a sense where it was more of like, like the a 
party drugs that, that he kind of overdosed on? I think a lot of people um, resort to substance use because of trying to deal with traumas or having ineffective coping skills. And um, I don't I don't think that most patients that I've seen, most patients that, you know, have ended up in the hospital or, you know, have ended up in treatment facilities, no one kind of starts, you know, most substances with the intent to just have a good time. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of um, deep rooted issues that, you know, people are struggling from even a lot of nurses. So I, I think that, you know, with regards to kind of how the patients feel, I don't think that they, that they go in, you mm -hmm. know, with that thought. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Thank you so much, Morgan. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a great conversation. We talked yeah. about a lot of amazing topics. Thank you for everything that you do. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Morgan.